Hey there, it's Rob McClure, your Lexical Tones podcast host. We're back. Uh, we had to take a little bit of an extended pause just due to the fact that myself, uh, Jamie Lee Sampson, and Andrew Martin Smith had kind of an incredible period of commissions, premieres, festivals, recitals, and some added responsibilities uh, with our teaching positions that hit us all exactly at the same time. Uh, so we took a step back, but now we're able to get back to podcasting. Uh, we've got some exciting episodes coming up, including this one with Pope Bama. I know Jamie has more entrepreneurship episodes coming up, and we've got some wonderful composers that you will hear from in the coming weeks, in addition to some more overdrinks episodes as we near episode 200. So as always, thank you for listening. Uh, we'd love to hear from you about the podcast, so find us on uh, Facebook or Instagram and reach out. And with that, let's get back to hearing awesome new music from awesome people. You are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. For Pope Bama, the adjectives for Aaron are multidimensional, performative, energetic. For Dennis, tactile, zoomed in, abrasive. Pope Bama is a New York-based experimental duo that focuses on exciting performances of unconventional works. Described as noisily virtuosic by Cleveland Classical, Aaron Rodgers, saxophone, and Dennis Sullivan, percussion, are composer-performers who apply electronics, vocals, and high-energy instrumental writing to fresh-squeeze sounds. Specializing in works conceived by Rogers and Sullivan, Pope Bama has commissioned and or performed works by Paul Pinto, Jenna Lyle, Rick Burkhart, Kitty Cooper, Christopher Biggs, and Ching-Ting Chan, among others, working closely with composers to structure works that challenge both the performers and the audiences. Pope Bama participates in multiple educational engagements each year, comprised of student workshops, composition lessons, panel discussions, masterclasses, and performances. Past engagements have included the Hoch School for Music in Freiburg, UMass Amherst, University of Minnesota at Duluth, the Collaborative Composition Initiative at Stony Brook University, Splice Festival, Line Upon Line Festival, and the Walden School Young Musicians Program in New Hampshire. Cool. So uh, we'll get to see you again. Um, it's only been a couple weeks, uh, but and we'll we'll talk about that a bit later. But um, you know, I I wanted to have you guys on because you know, obviously, you're doing you're both composers, you're both composer performers, and uh, you're doing so much with new music. So yeah, it just uh, you're. Um, kind of lighten it up right now, which is awesome. Yeah, we're doing our best um, to stay busy. <laughs> it's a it's a strange right. time for everyone. Sure. So, yeah. So uh, how did how did Pope Bama happen? Like, what was the catalyst of you two kind of forming this ensemble? Well, Dennis wrote a piece. Uh, that was the first step. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a duo piece for um, saxophone and percussion and. Um, he was curating a concert series at Jack in Brooklyn. This must have been 2016. Mm -hmm. And we just started playing together and it it worked pretty well. We had the, you know, 
similar sense of internal time and, and kind of um, similar aesthetic choices. And it just, it made sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as on top of like immediately just playing well together, um, we also had a similar just kind of like commitment to the shed and just working really hard, lots of rehearsal, kind of like endless appetite for hours of, of rehearsal and perfecting. And um, and so we're kind of probably like able to get that out in this group and then not impose it on the other groups. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it seemed like oh, this is something we should keep doing because like we can, I think we can go as like far to the wall as we want to go um, yeah. with this group. And that's, that's particularly what's always exciting about it. Um, I think it's exciting for us as composers. It's exciting for composers we bring in. Um, you know, we'll just, like I said, we'll go to the wall. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because um, because at that time, we both had played in a lot of groups and had a, a number of our own ensembles and bands. And so when we came together, we had all these ideas about how we wanted to fit sounds together and the ideal amount of rehearsal time to get a performance really shiny um, to be able to combine those sounds and really hone them, figure them out and then bring them into the concert hall. And so this sort of became, like Dennis said, just sort of the idealistic um, duo. We could sort of throw as much work as we could at each other and see where it went. And I think we we found something special. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in in your bio, uh you know, you're described as a saxophone and percussion duo, but I mean, I think that I think that description is maybe a little bit insufficient. So, can you kind of describe your activities as performers within Pope Bama? Sure. Um, well, we were both um, kind of like interested in the like hybrid theater, like music and theater worlds, um, and I knew that of Aaron. Uh, you know, just knowing her work with Thing NY um, in particular uh, before we started the group. Um, and I was also just interested in, in a lot of vocal work, um, particularly from, I don't know, like 2009, 2010, um, up to when we kind of started the duo. And of course, we continue to do um, some of that work. Uh, so it, it's funny because we were talking the other day how we're writing less for our voices um uh-huh. but composers we bring in are continuing to like utilize uh the voice whether it's just as another sound maker or as like you know a deliver delivery system for semantic message and narration and whatnot um and then we both yeah we both have gotten deep into uh like hardware electronics not so much programming um or any any n- no real software stuff but gotten gotten heavy into synths and you know speaker arrays and transducer setups and too many guitar pedals to count and so we've we've we fell down that rabbit hole kind of equally (laughs) yeah it's true there's a lot of uh, other things going on besides just the instruments and i think that's what makes the the group unique um but then when you're billing you you know you have to tell folks what you're playing yeah it's sort of you know it does fit into that world and we've done straight up percussion and saxophone duos there's a there's a lot of really great repertoire and there are a number of really great duos um even in the u.s alone that Mm -hmm. um, have specialized in 
percussion saxophone, dual music, and uh, and so there's a lot out there, and we've played a lot of that repertoire. Um, but we do uh, we do tend to uh, try to sort of build our own identity through some of these techniques that Dennis talked about: um, heavy vocalization, electronics, um, text use, and theater, like very performative type playing. And that's one of the things that I think. Uh, distinguishes Pope Obama is the way that we, you know we play with the voice and the hardware and the and the electronics and sort of the you know choreography in some ways um we integrate it into our duo in a way that it feels like if it, it feels like an all-encompassing performance um in addition to just you know playing chamber music on our instruments right um so so one thing I was kind of wondering about uh was that you know I'm I well I used to be uh, I used to be a percussionist myself, and I was kind of thinking about like, okay, you know, that that transition from like only playing your instrument to involving theater, involving voice, involving electronics, or even sometimes like choreography. Um, as a percussionist, I don't feel like any of that stuff would have been too far out there for me. Just because it's like we're constantly being asked to like hit everything under the sun or, you know, do just basically do everything. Like, you know, if you think about like Stuart Saunders Smith pieces where you're like using the body and using the voice and, and stuff like that. So it's it's like it's not that far out there. But Aaron, for you as a saxophonist, did you did you have any kind of like trepidation and getting into this like kind of stepping outside of your instrument or or extending um extending what you do with the instrument to to like get into this world of uh that you that you guys kind of have with Pope Bama yeah um I mean I the electronics part um on a very individual level was probably the biggest uh, thing that I learned when we got our duo together but prior to that Dennis had mentioned the group thing NY that I've worked with for a decade uh, we're all composer performers in that group, and so we had um, we'd written a number of of um, like evening like operas, for example, where we're all acting in it, we're all speaking, we're vocalizing, we're also um, using the instruments that we play as primary instruments at times. And so it, uh, I've been working, you know, as a sort of a performer. I wouldn't say performance artist uh, specifically because that's not quite the genre, but it, uh, but mm-hmm. to integrate all of these other aspects into performance for years. And so, um, when Dennis and I got together, it was very natural to, to, mm. you know, keep working in that direction. Um, and then of course the electronic elements, just the sort of integrating of guitar pedals, for example, into a duo setup where, uh, we don't really think of them as guitar pedals that are you know that are just sound making devices they're part of you know the overall performance the click that the button makes the noise is part of you know the the noise that we're producing as performers and so um i take on a little bit of a percussion role as well uh, with that yeah. you know stomping talking um singing and you know hitting you know wood blocks for example in dennis's first piece um, he has me playing wood block he has me blowing uh wine glasses so um yeah for me um, there was some history of that, and uh, we just pushed it further. Yeah, and the the Rick Burkhart piece you guys played at the concert at OU. You know, you were you were also playing violin is maybe not the right thing, but at least making sound on a violin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a violin. It needed to be something with a couple of strings. 
Um, there, there it is. And rather than build another one of those instruments that were right. my set of like, well, we already have this violin. Um, that's perfect. Big time saver. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, well, let's let's get into some of your pieces. So, uh, I wanted to start off with Aaron, your piece, Wormhole. Um, so, kind of tell us how this piece came to be. What caused you to start writing it? Um, is there any significance to the title Wormhole? If so, what is is that? Yeah, Wormhole. It's um, uh, so I started writing it in 2017, and it was right after I uh, I left a job that I'd had for over a decade, a full time job in publishing, and I. Um, had all this time on my hands. And that was, uh, it was sort of the first piece I wrote in that space, this sort of new adventuresome space that I'd always dreamed of ever since, you know, I left school um, to have this time. And I, I, uh, I was really curious about, uh, about how to create a piece sort of using a, rever- a reverse engineered kind of uh, strategy, right? So I made a lot of sounds using objects, um, mostly uh, initiated by air. So there's foot pedals, and these are just you know cheap um, air pump foot pedals that you might use to pump up your bike tire. Um, uh-huh. I had uh, air horns, uh, balloons. There are, um, there's the saxophone. There are uh, other sort of air, make, air making devices, train whistles, things like that in the piece. And uh, I wanted to have all of the sounds be initiated that way so that they were connected in some way. And yet um, I wanted us to be able to perform them. So what I did is I just did a lot of recordings on these objects and put them all together, created this sort of demo track, and then transcribed it into a rough piece. And we took it into the rehearsal space and started seeing what was really feasible, uh, how much time and space was needed to get from this object to this object, how much, you know, was this possible to use these pedals, um, how would we balance these sounds, questions like that. And then once we got sort of a working, you know, draft in real time, then we tweaked the score and then um, proceeded to add amplification. And that was what really helped the piece kind of come into this vibrancy, this balance. And so that that's how that piece was written. The title itself was sort of a take off of a rabbit hole just kind of uh, falling down into a space but the wormhole of course the sort of connecting universes I kind I I felt like it was a it was a sort of Einsteinian connection between uh you know a real performance and this sort of theoretical idea of a performance and um and the piece itself is is visually like that it's sort of you don't um, if you listen to it, you might not imagine how it is actually performed in real time. But when you watch it, it has this crazy um, visual effect of having all of these objects with all these different colors. And we're constantly moving and, and kind of, um, you know, in our way, sort of defying time. So uh, that's what I thought I wanted the effect to be. And that's uh, what I think it achieved, our final version of it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, can- for the listener, of course, they're gonna like listen to it right now. But can they can they go somewhere and like watch that video? Sure. Yeah, popebomba.com. Uh, we have the, that video posted as well as you know other other videos of ours. Um, but yeah, wormhole on popebomba.com on the media tab. Yeah. So Dennis, can you can you talk about your role in the piece? Like, what is what is your instrumental setup? And uh, are, does this piece have electronics in it? A little bit, yeah. A little bit. There's okay. two um, guitar pedals, one on each setup, um, and they're just 
kind of like a, a, a freeze function. So one is just the uh, freeze pedal. Um, and then the other one is a uh, reverb pedal that has a um, like endless reverb function. Yeah. Um, so you're, you know, instead of uh, capturing and sustaining the actual like resonance or attack transient of the sound that like the free freeze pedal does, you are just extending that resonance of the reverb. Um, so it's like a little bit more of a, there's like less of a one-to-one relationship, I think, in that freeze pedal. Yeah. It's more of just like, it's like it continues to hang in the room as opposed to actually giving sustain to a sound that maybe didn't have mm-hmm. sustain before. Um, the role in the piece is, um, yeah, it, it, it's noisemaker. <laughs> I mean, um, like I said, we workshop a lot of things together. So, you know, we bring in rough drafts of the scores um, and then kind of work together and, and, and advise one another on, on the scores from there. Um, to kind of bring it into its final final place. Um, the funny thing about playing that piece is the um, kind of like strapped in nature of it. There's kind of this like cockpit situation, yeah. particularly with the um, the feet on the foot pedals. Um, once there, once you're there, um, other than the couple of times where I uh, have to hit the guitar pedal, um, it's actually not ideal to take my feet off of them because you kind of get it's hard to get yourself situated back on because you're gonna have to prop yourself up and like back on your tailbone a little bit and then there's this you know whole bar of whistles uh that that are rigged up to the the mic stand and the megaphone um so you can also only move so far forward um Mm -hmm. without like chipping a tooth or something um (laughs) so that part of it's pretty funny like it's it's a really it's it presented a couple of unique challenges um, for just how to like physically execute or like a lot of times like having to pick things up blind uh, because you can't really turn your body. You're kind of locked Mm -hmm. in. Um, So, you know, having like a very specific uh, arrangement and row of, of implements that have to be picked up and knowing, you know, one is this, two is this, three is this, four is this, and, you know, to the front of me is this. And sometimes even feeling blindly feeling along those implements till you find, okay, there's the siren whistle. And theoretically next should be the scissors <laughs> <laughs> that I'm going to cut right. the balloon with. And it's not the scissors, then oh no. Uh, <laughs> so, and also then, you know, if you have to cycle back through and use those things again, putting them back down in, a, in that very particular place once again, so you don't, um, you know, yourself in a tough position three pages down the road when that thing is no longer where you need it so uh, i i guess that goes back to the choreography part that aaron spoke to earlier it's like you know all of that becomes very integral um yeah the the success of the of a good performance of that piece would you say uh so i i really like that idea of you know kind of okay i want these sounds i'm going to record them and then just kind of throw them into a daw and arrange things how i think i want them and then we'll figure out how to do it later um that 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 i for for me i think that answers a lot of questions i had about how do you like you know, how do you conceive of this thing, of this kind of piece when you're working with sounds that are, you know, not just your, your, uh, your primary instrument? And would you say that like that process is, 
you've repeated that process. Is that a normal thing for you or was that just kind of central uh, to this piece? Yeah, I've done that on a number of pieces. This piece, uh, it worked really well um, because it was, you know, the, the sounds were very concrete and I could make them all uh, myself, right? So I wasn't, um, you know, if I'm writing for like a chamber orchestra with traditional instruments, it's a lot harder to sort of create that for me anyway. Um, but, uh, or to reverse engineer in the same way. But the, uh, yeah. but the idea here was, you know, it was a little bit of a curiosity I had. I wanted to be able to make phrase out of these sounds that, you know, you don't consider to be instrumental sounds or, or necessarily even musical sounds, right? These are, you know, there's a, mm-hmm. at one point, you know, Dennis has a dryer tube solo. Like it's a, there are objects in this piece that make sound that isn't necessarily, you know, um, traditionally considered music. So I wanted to phrase things um, and use musical devices, triggers, and and to create, you know, dynamic flow to these phrases by placing these sounds um, like you might if you were orchestrating. Uh, so uh, that was, that was, what I was doing in the DAW, I was just, you know, arranging them in ways that I felt were musical. And then, of course, once we got our hands on them, we then created our own dynamics. Um, you know, there's a mixer that exists between the two of us in this sort of cockpit station that Dennis was saying. And we play that mixer as well, because a lot of times, you know, the, there isn't as much dynamic control over, you know, balloon smashing. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we have the amplification, but we're also you know, fading in and out and also turning things on and off in order to create, you know, some of the bigger sounds out of small sounds. Um, and, uh, yeah, using dynamics in a different way. I mean, the, the process you're kind of describing is, is very, very similar to like creating a a fixed media track or something like that. Um, did you, um, coming from Bowling Green, did you have that kind of experience of electronic music, uh, composition or anything like that mm-hmm. yeah I, I have a very vivid memory my first composition my first composition professor at Bowling Green was Eleni Lilios and yeah she I mean uh, just one of my clearest memories of composition lessons was in the studio um, and her talking to me about creating space and and phrase uh, using yeah. electronic sounds like how long how long should this sound go basically um, Mm-hmm. And, you know, having that ultimate control, just cut it off there. This is the right moment to add this. This is the right moment to move this along and to play with sounds in those phys- in that sort of, I say, physical way, but the way where it's very visually a sound on a, you know, on a DAW and, and that you're, you're moving it around and, you know, creating, um, you know, creating these envelopes to, to make music in that way. Um, that was the first, I, the first experience I'd had with it, but it was you know, extremely influential. And this is, I think, an offshoot of that, this piece really, you know, to, to go back into that world and then come out of it. Um, it's experimental, but it's also, it's where, um, where I think there's a lot of, you know, ground to be explored. Well, uh, this piece is available on your record, uh, Nation Building, along with uh, Dennis's piece that we're going to hear next, um, where can people get that record if they're if they're interested in listening to the other pieces on it? Bandcamp, yep, popebomba.bandcamp.com, uh, and that's our main. Yep. Yep. That's the hub. Awesome. Well, let's listen to it now. So this is Aaron Rodgers' wormhole. <sighs> Thank you. 
Uh, well, Dennis, let's move on to your piece, and this is Gamma Chamber. So can you kind of – same kind of starting question as Aaron. So can you kind of tell us about the title and what are the sonic sources? Like what what was, what was the thing that caused you to write this piece? Um, well, the cause to write the piece was um, at that time, and I guess I started in about 2017, but it wound up being uh, about a three-year – project um not continuously but but the last revision was um january 2020 like right before we we recorded it um and initially the um well initially and then also what stuck with the piece the entire time was the idea of um the role of performer instrumental performer and sound engineer but sound engineer live sound engineer as instrumental performer kind of like thinking about Uh this idea of particularly a lot of ensembles having their uh you know their dedicated sound person who is as integral to the performance as the people bowing strings and blowing air through instruments and yeah you know playing percussion um that there's there's no they you know required this have required of them the same kind of uh virtuosic skill set um and so first just starting with a, with a mixing board and, you know, using the, trying to use everything available from, um, you know, very simple, pa- you know, panning, um, volume, pa- volume faders, um, mute buttons is just to play the mixer gating gate on and off. Um, and then, you know, all the EQ is like t- just timbral sculpt live real time, like timbral sculpting of uh-huh. um of loops of live sampling of captured sounds um and then there was kind of like a a, a tape part or a fixed media part that um the initial idea was that i wanted to trigger everything um and then there was live processing um via an array, array of um, guitar pedals of the live samples and then some percussion um and I wanted it to be this triggering to be this like percussive action. So I loaded them all up in a mallet cat. And for those that don't know what a mallet cat is, it's uh-huh. like a MIDI 
a MIDI uh, trigger that's a, like a mallet keyboard instrument. Um, and it's funny, um, after the first performance, I kind of abandoned that entirely um, because what I thought would be this really engaging kind of like live triggering process, very performative, I was like, I'm actually playing a like 15 minute chromatic scale <laughs> as I play the samples, you know, I mean, a couple times yeah. they were played in succession, but it, it just, it, it was very specific and very intentional. So it was a lot of work, um, and took a lot, you know, it was a very difficult piece part to execute. But when I yeah. zoomed out and saw the video of the first performance, like the, the intricacy didn't it just didn't translate. Um, yeah. And I'm glad that it, it, it went that direction because I wound up just saying, you know, because I was trying to abandon this idea of like press, you know, plug and play fixed media. Um, and I kind of wound up going back and deciding, you know, that's fine. Um, there's no problem with, with that mm-hmm. and put them all into a, into a tape part and wrote a lot more percussion. I freed myself up to play a bunch more percussion, um, yeah. which was nice. And also to do a lot more with the live processing, um, and then Aaron's, uh, instrument, she plays, uh, mostly soprano sax on the piece, but also has a, um, transducer, uh, mounted on the bell of the, uh, soprano sax. We put a balloon over thinking about the idea of kind of like a transducer on a drum. Um, mm-hmm. we wanted to, I wanted to create like a membrane on the saxophone. So we stretched oh, a half of balloon over cool. it and put a transducer on that. So there's all sorts of interference with the instrument in that way with um, number one, the balloon, of course, like close when she plays her lowest note and closes all of the keys. Um, there is truly no way for the air to escape. So that does all sorts of funny things to the lowest pitch, but then depending on what's coming through the transducer, it can kind of interfere with the, you know, what the saxophone wants to do. Um, but it's actually then running through a uh, fuzz pedal and and back out and it's and then she has a uh, microphone in front of her and just has like a proximity feedback so the the uh there's kind of two levels of feedback going on the um fuzz pedal oscillate is self-oscillating with itself creating feedback that she just swells in and out with the volume pedal but then she can have a proximity sweep with the transducer to the microphone which also produces just regular audio feedback and then mm-hmm. the two kind of like interfere with each other in in crazy ways and sometimes melt transducers depending on how <laughs> um, and then i have one of the a similar setup with a, a microphone and a and a, a transducer on the back of a thunder sheet um and those are both linked together um through the same the same channel strip so they do they wind up just kind of Interfe- interfering with each other and canceling each other out depending on the space in the room we're in it kind of is a different thing every time um <laughs> the way they they interfere or don't with yeah. one another um they interfere with each other less in a big room and they interfere with each other quite a bit in a small room um yeah um so 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 that's interesting so in this piece and also the kind of uh the the piece the last piece we're going to talk about you know you're you're the the space that you're playing in has a lot to do with actually the 
the elements of the composition for that uh for that particular performance i mean it it seems like that you're you guys are really interested in those performance situations that are kind of unstable but also it seems like your music is very highly structured and and very like uh exacting so there's there's a kind of um dichotomy there of like wanting the wanting the thing to be like very oh we're gonna woodshed we're you know we're gonna play it like note perfect but then you're also dealing with these elements that are so unstable that it's like how how can that be perfect i mean is that is that kind of what keeps it keeps this exciting for you to kind of like harness that unstable energy yeah i mean it's um it's just a way to kind of like buck that trend of, you know, the, like I said, we you'd go into the woodshed and get and having these like highly rehearsed, highly intricate um, chamber pieces um, with like extremely accurate, accurate unison and hawking and things like that. And yeah. then within that, um, you know, having these unstable systems, um, you know, like literal, you know, electronic systems um, that, like you said, they're unstable. We we try to make sure that um, a sound's gonna happen within them. Like you know, we try to make sure that you know nothing, <laughs> like a complete canceling out of all sound together is is off the table because um, we usually right. want something. Um, but kind of yeah, being letting go of the exact pitch or timbre or whatever, what have you. Sometimes even volume um, of the sound that will be made. So like there's still a quite a degree of accuracy of like on and off or so if there's a volume pedal swell in swell out. Um, but then letting, letting then that system or that instrument kind of speak for itself and do its own thing. And over time, what's fun with that is like you, you do start to learn all the variables. Like there are, yeah, there winds up being, you know, kind of a floor and a ceiling to it. Um, and that's where it gets really exciting because you know you have another level of kind of like exactitude that you can now play within this. It's unstable, but you kind of after a while you learn to wrangle it over time. Um, yeah. So it's like it's like a, it's like having in like this improvisatory thing that you can play with, laid on top of this very exact structure. Um, yeah, I would say I would add to that. That was kind of what I was going to mention is that there's a high level of improv in our group and we both do a lot of improv. And I think part of what we love about improvisation is just that energy that, you know, that risk taking and that excitement in that moment. And so you want that in your performance. But we also are really, you know, we're really interested in creating tight, rhythmic you know, accurate performances and, and love the energy yeah. of that. So how do you get both? It's sort of, you know, you're either you're, you have to allow for some variables. And I think in, in the case of, you know, Jenna Lyle's piece that we'll talk about and in Gamma Chamber, there's, you know, there is that question mark uh, thing that can go really wrong or change everything. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's part of a game for us to have to react in a lot of ways um, and play within that space. Yeah. So, um, Dennis, I'll ask you kind of the same question. What is your, you know, what ends up being your process for composing a work like this? Are you, do you kind of take that, 
kind of reverse engineered process or are you more conceptual? You know, you just said that there, there's a high level of improv in this. So like, you know, how much is written down? How much are you kind of figuring out together? Yeah. Uh, well, it's all written down. And I guess the idea with the, uh, as far as like the high level of improv, it's usually some kind of it's like a layer of improv that's like floating over top of this like very particularly notated executing executed yeah. structure. Um, so, for example, Aaron might be playing uh, a very, you know, particularly written out saxophone line, but then she's free to move uh, the saxophone around to produce different feedback nodes mm. as she, as she okay. goes, or, you know, so that's where like, you know, you're improvising with the motion of the horn, therefore creating the different feedback while executing a very, you know, a, a, a yeah. particularly notated line. As far as, um, the composition process, um, I mostly start just like pencil and paper, um, and mm-hmm. just write, um, so there's there is a degree that then of needing to like then get into the room and like hearing things and hearing out. So it's like everything is very specific, but understanding that it's specific and existing in theory. Um, right. Yeah. Because who who really knows? Um, I will. I mean, I'll, I'll write for myself. I'll write at the setup a lot. Like if I'm writing for percussion, I'm writing for myself playing percussion. A lot of times, I build a setup and then just right after start yeah it's right there why not um or sometimes in a little bit with gamma you know just set up a a a video camera and just play and just improvise for a while and then go back and listen and find maybe not Mm -hmm. finding like particular musical phrases from that process but definitely finding sounds like finding sound worlds um that then i want to like kind of flesh out and compose in um but yeah, it's either at the setup or just or just pencil and paper, and then yeah. and then the rest happens in in the workshop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, one thing that I, I was kind of thinking about, you know, some of your some of your guys's music. Obviously, you know, uh, now I've heard uh, four different pieces uh, between the two of you, and um, it seems like you're you're pairing that like you know like i said that hyper exact style of composition with kind of a you know punk lo-fi diy aesthetic and i'm just like i'm totally here for it it's so awesome to hear those like those sonic materials that you're working with that are that are like truly composed you know as opposed to i think I think a lot of times, or at least in my experience, I've heard, um, you know, these kinds of sound worlds, but they're only like solely improvised and you lose a lot of like the, um, the idea of gesture and the idea of like ensemble and moments in, in that type of music that I think like you guys are just doing so well. So yeah, I really, I really like it. So (laughs) I'm a fan. There it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, uh, yeah, at the punk, I mean, I'm a, I'm a metal guy, metal kid. Never stopped that stop. Never stopped being a metal kid. And now is a metal mm-hmm. guy. Um, and, um, 
Yeah, you're not the first person to say that there's the, you know, I think we're both into some heavy and, and aggressive music in that way. And um, it, I, I kind of, I'm the, 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 the boundaries that exist between them are, are like, seem to disappear for me more. I think for both of us more every day yeah. um, that just like, maybe there's not this idea of just like, well, I'm also into these genres and, and now my, whatever you want to call it, classical, <laughs> if that's it, music is influenced by, and it's just like, maybe it's not influenced by, maybe it's just all yeah the same, you know, and like going to see performances of the different genres and realizing like maybe, you know, the vehicles are different and the presentation is different. The crowd is different and the venue is different. There's plenty of differences, but like when it comes down to the physical material, sonic materials, like maybe that, you know, piece for string quartet and live electronics that I saw this night and this like avant death metal quintet that I saw the next night. Like, I don't think the line is as thick as yeah it's made out to be um particularly in execution like definitely in execution there's no line there's they're all yeah killers <laughs> um yeah anyway yeah yeah there's i mean um just about once a semester i i blow a a young undergrad's mind by playing them like the last movement of Bartok's fourth string quartet. And they're like, Oh my God, this is like metal for string quartet. I was like, yeah, like, yeah, it's, we can, we can, you can, you can take a lot of influence from a lot of different places. It's, it's fine. You know, yeah. and they're like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like, yeah, I know. So <laughs> anyway, um, all right, well let's uh let's listen to it. So uh this is Dennis Sullivan's Gamma Chamber.
so before we get to the last piece, I just I I have to say like how blown away my students and I were by your performance that you recently gave at Ohio University. I mean, the virtuosity in all forms of the word was just astounding. You're you were bringing like challenging pieces for the audience and delivered them with like such presence and and skill like you had us in the palm of your hands the whole time so i just have to thank you for that I, like the the other faculty members that were watching the live stream they like were so complimentary about you guys and like i have talked to many many students um afterwards and they were like oh my god that, that was like my favorite concert i've seen at ou you know like that was so so many of them like had that exact thing to say so um yeah, it was great having you there. It was great to be there, man. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, I mean, especially at this time when, you know, it's, it's so it's so hard to keep live performances even happening. You don't know what's going to change month to month. And, um, you know, we're lucky we, you know, have a partnership that we can, I mean, we spent a lot of the last two years working on that Rick Burkhart piece, the wing, the one that we... Uh-huh played the, the final piece on the program um and you know we have we've had that um going for two years as a you know through the isolation through all of the lockdowns um we spent you know a, a week prior just preparing and so part of the the time sort of inside um has been really honing these pieces um so it was you know they were they were ready to be performed for folks, and we yeah. were we were ready to perform too. There was a lot of energy, yeah. especially coming out of this past month, um, yeah. that we really wanted to present and and to share. Yeah, it was awesome. Well, one of the pieces that you performed on that concert is the next piece we're going to talk about. This is technically yes by Jenna Lyle. Um, longtime listeners will recognize the name. Um, we, we interviewed Jenna in episode 47. I think we're closing in on episode 180 right now. So, um, how did you, how did you get connected with, uh, with Jenna? Well, I think we both knew Jenna before, um, I had known her work, um, with parlor tapes and, um, and just, I had met her a handful of times when she'd come through New York and, um, was just really captivated by her um, her writing, her concept of of performance, and and the, and also the process, which we found out about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, we saw a piece of hers actually on a program that we did the New York premiere of Gamma Chamber um, uh-huh. pre. Yeah, in the Mallet Cat days of the Gamma Chamber, um, and she in the had before a piece, times. Yeah, um, and she had a piece. Um, I don't remember the the name was something like like duo for human and human cello and cello or something like. I'm, I'm, I don't have that totally right, but the the person had a. Uh, there were three performers. Um, one somebody playing cello and then another individual who had these like i think it was like airplane cable like really strong cable and they had these leather gloves and they were holding the cable and then they had the cables were attached to these wooden planks that they had under their feet and they were just like stretching 
the cable and then somebody was reaching jenna was reaching from behind and bowing the cable and playing this person and as they like moved around the pitch would would change and it was um a it was a great sound world but b just like the sheer like feat of strength um from this this guy i think it was her partner eric like holding the cables the whole time um you could see like his arms like shaking by the end and then it's just you know on top of it just that feeling that just like what can make so much performance many performances so exciting at this idea like man this could go terribly wrong at any Uh moment like this (laughs) like somebody's gonna lose an eye (laughs) um (laughs) it was just it was um really beautiful and and uncomfortable and and like we had a, we were just like really also really close to it. Like our seats were just like the way this day, everything was set up. We were like a few feet <laughs> from it. Uh, so I think we felt it really hard when, <laughs> when they performed it. Yeah. And I think that was the, the, our moment of just like, we gotta, we gotta get a piece with Jenna. We need to get a piece yeah. from Jenna. And we just said, not just like to, to have uh, a work from her, but just to like have the experience also of like, we, we wanted to like, get in on the inside with her process a little bit just you know have the experience with her yeah so so can you talk about like working with her we when we were uh when we were packing up your show you you guys kind of talked to me about that uh that process of like figuring out what this piece was going to be with her yeah so jenna when we first asked asked her to work with us she just booked a plane ticket to New York. She lives in Chicago. And, um, that was this, that was the first step was, okay, we're going to spend a weekend together. Uh, we had a space in Greenpoint and we just spent three days with her in the space. She had ideas about, uh, creating feedback through, um, through, uh, small earbuds and the, the implanting those in instruments in the soprano saxophone. And then we had another clarinet, clarinet. Mm-hmm. that we used and um, just finding that what worked um, sound wise, but then also body wise, what kind of movement, um, what were we doing on stage? And so we spent a lot of time moving around um, with these sound devices, with the feedback, um, also playing with our voices, playing with um, various microphones. And really, I mean, that was how she created the piece. It was, you know, uh, she booked one more ticket out, I think a few months later, and we spent another weekend together and basically finished it. And at the end of the whole process, I guess, six full days of, of sort of like living together, uh, we, we had a piece. And so we said, hey, Jenna, um, so, uh, you know, when do you want to give us the score? And she's like, oh, you want to score? <laughs> this is the piece. Like, we, we know the piece, right? Just go do it. And she's right. I mean, this is a piece that yeah. really the score was very much an afterthought. It's sort of a document of, you know, a, just a reference point for us later. But I mean, we had, we built the piece with her in a room. And that's one thing to say about Jenna Lyle is that she, you know, she works very closely with performers and is very, very much a hands-on composer. Um, and uh, has it really you know, redefines that word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that process, um, just seems so attractive. I mean, it's, you know, it's, 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 
it brings me back to the the you know the times when I was like in bands and stuff. It's like okay, let's get in a room and you know what what do you think? You have an idea. You have an idea. Oh, let's just put it together. You know, and that it's so so organic and nice. That that whole thing about oh, you want to score? What? That's that's awesome. That's that feels like I I know it's not effortless, but it feels like the the process would be so effortless you know just bouncing ideas back and forth so that's that's awesome so um yeah kind of tell us about uh you said yeah just just kind of tell us about the sound sources so there are there are little earbuds you're creating feedback through the instruments i remember on stage you had like a flute was up on stage yeah well we also had, had flute stuff. this time for, for this performance because we don't yeah. know where the clarinet went. Um, oh, it's somewhere. It's somewhere. I think it's in a barn in upstate New York. Um, that's another okay. story, but I think that's where it is. Um, so we used a flute this time, which was actually interesting because the having the earbuds and the little mic like in a metal uh, tube as opposed to like a wooden like conical shaped thing actually was a bit different. Um, so there, she had like a small uh, little headphone amp. Little like headphone amp and splitter for four headphones. Um, and then I had these little, uh, a company called Niant, these little capsule microphones. Um, and they're, they're kind of like little lapel mics, but they're um, he- just like heavy duty. You can swing them around mm-hmm. and smash them on things and get all sorts of wonderful noise with it. Um, and so uh, it's really just like proximity of the, it's like the mic, it's like the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids version of like a microphone and a like monitor speaker. Um, yeah. You're basically sticking the mic right on the speaker, but instead it's a tiny little capsule microphone and a set of earbuds. Um, and so there's a, there are uh, a couple sets of earbuds and a microphone in the clarinet. And then there's a set of earbuds and a microphone um, up inside the soprano sax. And then that is its own kind of contained unit. Um, and then I have a capsule mic on my finger um, that can do. And that's like the proximity to the clarinet uh, earbuds for, you know, can do proximity stuff with the microphone to the earbuds and the clarinet. And then Erin um, can kind of have some proximity things as she moves the soprano sax around to get different feedback uh, dyads and whatnot. Um and Aaron, are you also like controlling? Um, I saw you kind of fingering the saxophone a bunch. Is how does how does that alter the the feedback? Yeah, so I'm basically altering the shape of the cavern, right, where the feedback is okay. occurring by airing out certain holes, lifting keys, closing keys, and um, I have uh, the mic going in one of the keys itself, so I really have. Um, just all the keys up to that point that I can change. And it's amazing. Um, like I've, I do a lot with feedback inside the bell of the horn. Um, and it's, it's a really kind of fertile environment for feedback. You can Mm -hmm. change things a lot and, um, you can find really, really interesting, you know, pitches, ways of venting and even multiphonics within feedback. So that's what I was doing. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So then, um, yeah, so all of those things run to one mixer. Um, and that's nice. Uh, it's nice to have the mixing board right in front because we can kind of EQ things and like nudge, nudge things along. If like you feel mm-hmm. you something's starting to like lean into this really nice, like you're saying, almost find this multiphonic. And it's just like, oh, I bet 
if I nudge the mids a little bit, like we can actually sustain that and then dial high out a little bit. And, um, but of course we try to do that like in a performative way. So it doesn't, I don't think generally wanted this idea of like, we're like engineering this stuff all the time. So trying to kind of do that blind a little bit. Um, and then there's a direct out from that mixer to another mixer that goes to the PA. Um, so half the piece starts with just the sound of the feedback in the earbuds. And then we bring in the support of the PA halfway through from the direct out from one mixer to the other. And then there's also a, like a microphone in the bell of the clarinet, which also just adds like a little extra like sound support to the, so it's not so small and fragile the whole, the whole time. And that's when the piece gets a little unruly. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a piece that builds for sure. It starts yeah. very quiet and and very still, and then we move. The sound builds. We add. We we start speaking. Um, Dennis speaks into the mic. I speak into the edge of the saxophone. So it's worth noting there's no mouthpiece on the sax for the entire piece. It's but I'm also altering that cavern by changing the shape of my mouth by having my mouth on you know the the neck of the instrument and stopping that whole um but also by putting vocalization through it so that combines with the feedback that's already going on and we get a whole other world of sound and what are you what is the text what are you saying oh uh, we're just speaking gibberish and actually i was i was talking to dennis i think i start with a hello hello it's not, it has right, this yeah. feeling of like a radio kind of frequency um like with a lot of yeah yeah. A lot of noise, a lot of white noise. And um, we converse with each other. I think I start by just speaking. I start by speaking alone and kind of you know, to myself. And then we talk to each other. Then we talk to the audience. Then we talk to each other and the audience and kind of have this sort of three-way argument or not argument, but a conversation, yeah. I should say. And then... Um, it gets a little combative sometimes. It can, yeah. It, I mean, yeah. she wanted it to be a very natural yeah. thing. And when we were working together, she wanted to play on this idea of us you know, being two people there having a, a kind of a conversation. Um, but yeah, there are no, yeah, there's, there's no, no text. written text. We mm -hmm. just make it up. I can usually talk about D what uh, I'm doing. Yeah, me too. It's like, I'm going to maybe just a little more mid. That sounds nice. That's good. That's good. I'll just stay here for a while. Maybe uh maybe uh maybe uh a, a, a little more little little more bit. Yeah. yeah. I I could kind of make it out a little bit and it seemed like that's what you were doing. Um but but yeah, that's that's funny. Do you know uh technically yes. Do you know what the title means? No. Technically no. Okay. Technically, no. Definitively no. We do not know. Definitively what it means. no. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Well, let's listen to it. So uh this is Jenna Lyle's Technically Yes.
करूँ
Uh, last question uh, before we go. Uh, how did you both find music as the thing you wanted to pursue for your life? Whoa. Yeah, it's kind of an origin story right. question. Um, I mean, well, my dad bought me a drum set when I was eight. Um, that was significant. Um, cause yeah. I just hit stuff. I was, you know, like, I'd like line up the aftershave bottles in the bathroom, like playing with toothbrushes. I mean, it just, it was like a, a thing that he recognized. Um, and like against, um, yeah, he was not supposed to buy me a drum set, but he did it anyway. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's it was it it's it's been an obsession as long as I can remember, um, and kind of realizing knowing that I, I also like I I was not a good like academic student. Um, I got better at that in college, but through like high school, I was not, and it was it was just like a a, a significant just like a real lack of interest um, uh-huh. in anything but like playing drums. Um, be it in the orchestra or in, you know, it was like a you know big marching scene there when I was a kid or playing in, you know, punk bands, metal bands. Um, there just was not, not, I didn't have a lot of interest in anything else. So, mm-hmm. um, it didn't feel like there was one like shining moment. Um, as long as I could remember, I just like, it's like this, this is what I'm doing. And like going to music school wasn't like, and then now I'm going to have a career in it. Um, Going to music school was just like, well, what else am I going to, you know, if I'm going to go to school, I'm going to play music because that's all I want to do anyway. And if I'm, if I don't go to school, then I'll play music. Um, and yeah. And then, yeah, parlayed it into a career. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> yeah. I would say that, um, I guess where I grew up in, uh, Western Canada, just, um, like Alberta, Prairie, Alberta, not Mountain, Alberta, the east side. And um, I had, uh, I, I went to a, a very, like, a, I lived in a very small town outside of a very small town, very small graduating class kind of thing. Um, a lot of farm and oil uh, and a lot of hockey and sports. And so music wasn't, um, it wasn't a huge cultural um, thing when I was growing up, but I did have, um, I had some really good teachers and my parents were both my mom played piano and you know kind of taught me basics when I was young but they pushed me into to to pursue music and I was lucky to have some good teachers even in a small town um that really gave me a lot of support uh I had some colleagues friends there that were also into music um and we had a little sax quartet in high school and um I just I really enjoyed uh just having that musical side and, and wanted to pursue it more once college came around. So I thought, well, you know, I, I, I'm kind of sick of math and physics and chemistry. And <laughs> kind of, by grade 12, I was ready to just, just to try music full time for a while. And then that grew, I went to, uh, I sort of was a, like a, um, in a small pond, um, and then jumped into a bigger, um, a bigger ocean in undergrad and just, you know, really wide-eyed, found out all of all of the possibilities of music. There's a really big jazz scene in Edmonton um, where I went to undergrad, and uh, and 
you know, got to see a lot of really great artists and a, a lot of, you know, just really great musicians. And it just grew my curiosity. And then, of course, grad school in Bowling Green just opened my eyes to, you know, this the world of composition and all of these amazing composers. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that at that point, I started to get the eyes for New York City. And that was when um, a lot of, you know, the, a lot of ensembles were getting started in New York. Um, so I mm -hmm. moved here during that time. That was around 2005. And, you know, haven't really looked back. Awesome. Well, uh, before we go, can you, you've kind of already mentioned some of the, some of the places, but can you again, like tell people where they can find more of your music, where they can find you on social media, stuff like that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so popebama.com is our website and we have our media up there um, and uh, YouTube as well. Just hashtag popebama or just uh, search popebama on YouTube. Uh, we have uh, a Facebook page and a Twitter account. We do not have Instagram accounts, but we have individual. Um, Aaron plays the sax and, and uh, D Sullivan noise mm -hmm, where we post a lot of popebama content. Um, again, the Bandcamp. Uh, page is where you can buy our album Nation Building, which is popbama.bandcamp.com. And I think that's it. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Dennis, Aaron, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Robert. We appreciate it. And thanks to Mexical Tones and the Adjective Music and everybody. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about Adjective New Music or Lexical Tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.